everybody. This is Tim Green with Rattle Magazine, and this is your Rattlecast for Tuesday, November 12th. We have another great show lined up for you today. Our guest will be Wally Swist, the Massachusetts poet, a naturalist and spiritualist kind of poet, um, also a haiku poet. So I hope you enjoy that. It's, uh, let's see, 546 my time. That means that Wally will be on in about 14 minutes. So if you're watching this uh, rebroadcast and want to tune back in later, um, skip ahead 14 minutes to get to Wally. But uh, for now, we're doing the pre-show, just hanging out, making sure everything's working. Uh, if you're on the chat, say hi. Um, we're going to play a few poems, kind of relax, uh, see what's going on. Um, yesterday, as you know, was uh, Veterans Day in the United States and uh, Armistice Day everywhere else. So I thought I'd play a few poems by veterans to start off. Um, let's see. Now, this is uh, Bill Gloss, a poem from issue number, let's see, it's a pretty long one, as you can see. Uh, issue number 58. And um, this is a really interesting form. This is an erasure poem where it, that erases itself. So there's three poems, um, Phase Line Whiskey, Alpha, and Romeo, which is, of course, W-A-R for war. And um, each, each subsequent poem is a further erasure of the previous. And uh, it's a really interesting format. So here we go with... Bill Gloss. And oh, I should say Bill Gloss is an award-winning writer whose honors include many, among many others, the Missouri Humanities Council Award for Veterans Poetry. He's the author of four books of poetry, most recently Virginia Walkabout. And uh, he says in his note about this, for 10 years after serving in the army, I followed the example of my father, a Vietnam veteran, and kept my experiences as a combat platoon leader bottled inside. Then I started attending open mics, where each time a poet shared his or her personal burden, the crowd would lift them up. It was then I started writing my war, the long-kept secrets and the hidden pains leaking out one cathartic driblet at a time. So it's a great note uh, by Bill Gloss, and uh, here he is reading Phases of Erasure, A Soldier's Journey. Phases of Erasure, A Soldier's Journey. One. Phase line whiskey. Love was the first word uttered after Mama and Papa, who scratched your babbling language into a memory book to mark milestones from your childhood, a dictionary that grew wide as distance between stars. The first time a new principle was introduced, gravity keeps us down, it's impossible to disappear. You always questioned why. Your parents encouraged you to walk, to run, to leap. Your mind knew nothing of boundaries, the barriers preventing fantasies from becoming real. In your world, matters of the soul harmonized with crickets' heartbeats. When neighborhood kids trampled the line of daylilies by the duck pond, you cried confused by cheerful shows of power and dominance. Your lust was for all things green and growing. Not a thing flew in the blue sky that did not make you want to soar. Fireworks on Fourth of July made you think of kaleidoscopes, the sparkled bombs exploding high up in the black, 
and the tattered, tumbling, cardboard shrapnel of falling leaves. Dreams full of joy, a boy in your pajamas flying out of bed, no pain when you thudded to the carpet in a room filled with matchbox cars and toy soldiers. Your last thought on nights when the full moon swallowed your window, wondering if tomorrow you might wake up on its foreign soil, wondering whether life would be cockeyed peering down through your window like a mourner peeking into a grave, or if your beating heart would still find magic among its craters. God knows how many times you took apart toasters and clocks, having to know what slows the hour hand, which cog locks in with which gear to combat the slippage of seconds, and how many times you picked through trash cans, searching every nook, prying apart shadows until each hidden treasure becomes yours. The only enemy you'd ever known was ignorance. The only mystery, how every unturned stone did not ignite everyone's curiosity. Who can hide the longest was your favorite game. The cavern behind your captain's bed becoming an improvised fort in which you'd sit for hours, imagining devices that might make you invisible, that might make your ridiculous wants come true. You longed to turn the magic spinning through your body into something tangible, an overcoat you could drape over inanimate objects to give them life to fill every empty space with ideas stitched from the fabric of your dictionary, until the last void stoppers with the very last word. Your parents took away your only pet, a turtle, after exploring fingers got stuck a third time in its shell, asking, but what is inside? You hated not touching the answer, something so full of possibility. 2. Phase Line Alpha Love was the first word scratched from your dictionary, the first principle to disappear. Your parents knew nothing of the real world, matters of the heart trampled by power and lust. Not a thing flew in the blue sky that did not make you think of bombs and shrapnel. Dreams of pain filled your nights, wondering if tomorrow foreign soil would be your grave. Your beating heart knows how time slows in combat, how every shadow becomes the enemy how every unturned stone can hide an improvised device that wants to turn your body into an inanimate object, to empty your dictionary until the last word in its shell is hate. 3. Phase Line Romeo Nothing Matters not the blue sky, not dreams of tomorrow, 
your beating heart slows, becomes stone. Yeah, and that was Bill Gloss with an incredible poem, Phases of Erasure. Uh, you can find more of Bill Gloss's work at um, BillGloss.com. That's B-I-L-L-G-L-O-S-E. Um, that was just such a creative poem, a self-erasure, and so powerful. I think we, if I remember right, I think we nominated that for a Pushcart Prize. Um, but it's a great poem by a great poet. And um, and thank you for your service, Bill Gloss. Uh, okay. Now, next up, we're going to have another... Uh, Another veteran poet. This is Jim Velvis with his poem Mail Call. And uh, Jim uh, has published hundreds of poems and journals, including Plowshares, The Sun, and Rattle, including his 2019 Neil Postman Award winning poem, The Distracted. Um, his work has also appeared in Best of the Net and Best American Poetry. And he lives in Washington with his family. And this is his poem from last, uh, last fall Mail Call. Mail Call. We huddled around the drill sergeant like kids before a buff Santa and waited for our white envelopes. Night after night, nothing came for me. No girlfriend or wife, family disinterested, friends floating in the swells of their lives. Once I thought of writing myself a letter and sending it in the morning post to receive it sometime later that week so recruits would not pat my back in pity before stumbling to their bunks to read the happenings of things back home. After six weeks of this, one man, Barr, began sharing his wife's intimate letters, encouraging me to open them, read them, smell the patchouli sprayed onto their seal. It embarrassed me, this making a comrade a kind of literary cuckold, before handing the letter back and not having read her words, only lipped them for his benefit. But it was like that in the military sometimes. People shared what could not be shared, a buckle, a spare bullet at the range, the last of one's canteen Kool-Aid. And sometimes, many years later, and a far different mail call, that man's war death, as the nauseating news arrived in the plain, modest white envelope, written in that woman's familiar hand, smelling of new smoke and old perfume. And that was Jim Valvis, James Valvis, I should say, reading Mail Call, you can find more of uh, James' work at valvis.net, or uh, if you type Jim, James Valvis into YouTube, he's got a YouTube channel too. Um, and that poem we did nominate for a Pushcart Prize last year, I believe. I think we gave The Distracted, the Neil Postman Award, and um, Mail Call the uh, Pushcart nomination so he wouldn't feel left out. But those are a pair of really great poems by James Valvis. He's been on a roll lately. Let's see, we have three minutes. I have one more short poem uh, for you. This one is uh, not by a veteran, but about a veteran. So this is a good short poem uh, to end up the pre-show on. And here we go. This is uh, Aaron Brown's Old Man Watching Dunkirk. 
And um, Aaron Brown is the author of the poetry collection Acacia Road, winner of the 2017 Gerald Cable Book Award from Silver Review, Silverfish Review Press. He lives in Texas, where he's a professor of English and directs the writing center at uh, Laterno University. And here is reading Old Man Watching Dunkirk. This is from Poets Respond about a year ago last summer when the movie Dunkirk came out. Old Man Watching Dunkirk. When he stood... His knees shook, shoulders bending in the light of the credits, letters streaming like eyes at a memorial, scrolling names. Those who've crafted a narrative we might enter. There aren't many left to remind us never to go back. Not many left to say, I've seen what hatred can do. Not many like this old man, ghosted against a fading screen. He was the last to leave the theater. Yeah, so that was Aaron Brown reading Old Man Watching Dunkirk from Poets Respond, um, July 30th, 2017. I guess that was two years ago that Dunkirk came out. Okay, we got one minute to go. Um, I should just say, Rattle is a publication of the Rattle Foundation, a 501c3 nonprofit promoting the practice of poetry. We've been in continuous publication since 1995, and uh, if you like what we do here, if you enjoy these podcasts, no matter where you're listening, please do click the subscribe button or give it a five stars if you're on iTunes, or um, or uh, give it a thumbs up if you're on YouTube, or share it if you're on Facebook, just whatever you can to uh, spread stuff around social media, because that is the name of the game. Um, eyeballs are the currency these days. We don't ask for donations, but we do ask that you share this stuff, because uh, hopefully it's valuable, and if you find it valuable, please do share it. Okay, so we're going to pull up the uh, splash screen, throw on the bumper music, and I'm going to give Wally Swiss a call. So I'll be right back. Hang on with me just one minute. Okay, so uh, we have Wally Swift on the line. Wally Swift is a, a prolific poet. He's published about three dozen books of poetry and nonfiction and chapbooks. Um, he was for 30 years a uh, bookseller, so we might talk a little bit about that. I'm always curious to talk about booksellers. Um, for 10 years, he was the book reviews editor for Modern Haiku. And uh, his most recent book is um, The Bees of the Invisible, which I'll put up right here. Uh, there's Bees of the Invisible, poems by Wally Swiss. He has three books, I think, within the last year, if I remember right. So um, he's he's going to read from mostly Bees of the Invisible, but uh, some of the other books, too. Like I said, Wally Swiss is very prolific. Um, and I'm bringing him right now. Uh, hello, Wally Swiss. Hello, Tim. How are you? I'm good. How are you? I'm doing well. And you're out in uh, in Massachusetts, right? I have the little, little screen tag, right? Yes, uh, uh, Western Massachusetts. Ah, great. Is it is it uh, terribly cold out there? I think I remember the, hearing there's a blizzard and things going on in the everywhere else actually, but here. <laughs> actually, it's it's going down to the mid teens tonight, so it's pretty cold. Yeah. yeah. Um. So um. So Wally, do you want to start out with uh, just reading a poem to sort of break the ice? 
Sure, I'd love that. Um, I, I intended to, well, I intend to rather um, read a, maybe a dozen poems from the Days of the Invisible. This is September morning. Mm -hmm. <clears throat> Sky clear after rain, alleviating six weeks of drought, sunny with a hint of coolness in the shadows beside the barn and under the trees, speckled with a fringe of fleabane, the orb weaver web on the porch, sticky with spiral capture silk, containing another victim, a queen mantis wrapped in a winding sheet, and the queen Anne's lace bending in the meadow under the weight of a heavy dew. Very nice. Thanks, Wally. Um, so, so um, I've heard you described as a, um, a nature and spiritual poet. Um, and, and that kind of fits in perfectly as the first poem to read because, um, you know, it just fits perfectly with that. So, um, so what does that mean to you, that being a nature and spiritual poet? Um, well, uh, uh, for me, most of my, uh, much of my inspiration, well, two things at least, uh, mo most of my inspiration comes from um, uh, the source is, is, is nature, um, my spiritual practices. So um, uh, I, um, I also um, uh, um, draw from that. Um, what else can I say? I also, um, I've also in the past few years, I've, I've written quite a, uh, quite a few political poems. Mm -hmm. um, I had actually intended to read a poem tonight um, entitled Walt Whitman on Donald Trump. Oh yeah, I see that there. Um, so um, I also think that um, I often write through the matrix of the natural world. I might be writing about another, uh, might be another theme or another topic, but I'll use nature, especially nature, um, to express that. Mm -hmm. <clears throat> um, well, I'm getting some feedback. Could you, is it possible to put the headphones on? Because I think right. it's coming back sure. at me. Sure, sorry. Tim. Oh, no problem at all. How's that? That's much better. I can't hear myself anymore. Okay. <laughs> oh, good. Um, so... So you mentioned your spiritual practice. What what is your spiritual practice? That's that's one of the things I love talking to people about most is spirituality. Because to me, poetry is sort of my spiritual practice. I think poems are kind of like prayers. And um, well, they are. Yeah, yeah. So so what is uh, what is your spiritual practice? Um, well, I, I have to say that my that my spiritual life is informed by um, several um, diverse practices. Um, Many years ago, I started. I was. I practiced zazen seriously, but that was um, more uh, more years ago than I'd like to even um, quote or uh, relay. Um, gee, um, I've been I've been reading a lot of I've been reading a lot of work by Steve Taylor, mm -hmm. who is a who's a who's a who's a Brit, um, and also um, earlier in the year, I was reading the work of Russell Williams who actually, um, Steve Taylor edited a book of his called um, Not I, Not Other Than I. Um, he, uh, Russell Williams was actually the, the president of the Manchester Buddhist Society for about 45 or, or so years. And um, although he um, wasn't quite widely read, he, um, 
he had an awakening um, in his late 20s, early 30s, um, in the 1950s, and uh, it was quite, um, quite a, uh, 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 provided quite a, quite a bit of resonance for his own spiritual life. He is considered to be a master teacher. Mm -hmm. um, do you, do you spend a lot of time, you know, in the woods? There are a lot of poems about hiking, and um, and do, do you uh, do you get get out a lot? Um, do I get out a lot? Yeah. Um, probably not as much as I would like, but um, in certainly in previous years, uh, I certainly have hiked. Yes. Mm -hmm. um, well, great. Well, do you want to read a couple more poems? Uh, I would. I'd love to. Excellent. And I have all the page numbers, so this is great that you, you printed them out ahead of time, so I know exactly where you're going to go. Well, good. Um, I'd like to. Next poem I'd like to read is is entitled. The, the Space Between, and this is for Christine Cody, who is the editor and publisher of Shanti Arts. The Space Between. There's a lot to be said for being able to appreciate the uncertain space between winter and spring, an unusually long space this year after an unending winter, easy enough to mention finding wood anemone, bluets, trout lily, and violets, what is radiant draws us, holds our attention, replenishes our hope in the seeds of regeneration springing into flower. This serves us, as does Nadezda Mendelstam in Hope Against Hope when she gives back the egg her husband Osip had begged from neighbors for her supper before he was arrested under orders by Stalin and taken to be imprisoned in the gulag, being grateful to witness the space between winter and spring is a grace few of us fully fathom. That grayness between the melting ice and snow and the brittle emptiness of the leaf litter beneath the budless trees. This may resemble the truth we seek more than the hope we grid ourselves with to staunch the ruthlessness of an authoritarian regime, intolerant of compassion, or a cognizance of what is moral. The space will prove to be a meditative and more prudent path to take between the grayness of one season and the animation of another before we are truly surprised by an indescribable joy upon seeing the ineffable yellow flowers spangled by the lily and the speckled whiteness of anemone that mark the distance between winter and spring. There's a lot to be said about oppression and freedom, between our seeking truth and the abundant hope found in the young black snake's sinuousness sliding between the first wildflowers or a cotillion of box turtles sunning on a log. Would you like me to read another poem? Too? Yeah, yeah, why don't you read a few? Read like maybe three or four. Okay, uh, this is Hawk Feathers. Okay. This is uh, much shorter. Mid-February snow melt mud. Mid-February snow melt mud. The fields expanse. At the southern edge, a porcupine barks and bristles, edges away into a clutch of winterberry. Hemlock forest, blight of woolly adulgent green moss, browned bracken along the border. Beyond... The trail winds amid trees, blowing mist spreads through branches. Here, 
hawk feathers litter the ground, one cluster, then another. Breaking down in the drizzle, I gather one feather, another, and another, reaching each time for an answer. This next poem is entitled Lullaby, and it's an adaptation. Um, uh, the past year or two, a um, couple of years, I've been um, adapting uh, poems by uh, Rainer Maria Rilke, um, ones, who, ones that I've actually lived with for um, about 45 years. Uh, this is called Lullaby. Uh, this is forthcoming in a magazine called Transference, which explores the process of uh, translation um, out of Western Michigan University. This is entitled Lullaby. If I lose you one day, will you then sleep alone without my murmuring beside you as do the branches of the linden? Without my lying beside you, always astir and leaving you with my words, lowered as eyelids across your breasts, your arms, your mouth. Within my watch, within, without my watching over you so I might secure you, so you can be alone with who you are, as in a garden among clusters of aromatic mint, the spicy star anise. I'm going to move, I'm going to move from the sublime of that poem to uh, a poem that appeared in Eureka Street in Australia, which is published by some Franciscans down there. This is entitled Walt Whitman on Donald Trump. Oh, you snake oil selling provocateur, you faux gilded imposter selling authoritarianism for American democracy. May you choke on your own phlegm filled speeches, your conspiratorial rants, your endless quiver of lies whose equivocal insults you brandish and shoot like arrows at those whose integrity you should quaver beneath instead of belittling. You choose to ruin and impede instead of build and facilitate your brand of hatred scars and lacerates, leaving a barren swath in its wake. You've long ago made a deal with the devil, and even he has stepped outside, or rather aside, from your burning wrath and vehemence. May the best in us topple you, and the ugliness of your kind. May we persevere in preserving our largesse and swamp you in the imbecility of our own making, of your own making, rather, your smallness of character, or lack thereof entirely. The soulless fluke that you are, whose odious turpitude rages in the monstrous wake you leave. For the history you will never be able to re rewrite the dark legacy for which you will become known and the spiritual insolvency with which you have defrauded all of the people. May the echoes of your offensive and irritating pseudo flamboyance ring in your own ears. May your defiant wind up toy impressions of how and what eloquent presidents walk and talk like, strike you down in your spitefulness. May you crawl like the worm that you are. May we be inhabit the earth. 
I'll just keep on going, Shin, if that's all right. Yeah, yeah, go ahead. I think you skipped the Bees of the Invisible, though. I don't want to skip the title poem. Uh, no, actually, um, I just I just switched those around. I'll be reading uh, that next. Oh, okay. This, this is the eponymous poem. Um, this is the Bees of the Invisible, and um, I'm really pleased to note that this poem will be featured. Um, I'm the featured poet in the winter issue of, uh, of uh, Sufi Journal, and uh, uh, I'm quite delighted by that. This is the Bees of the Invisible, and it's prefaced by a quote by writer Maria Rocco. We widely gather the honey of the invisible in order to store it, to store it in the great golden hive of the invisible, the bees of the invisible. I recognize the sacredness in the Kusa dogwood this morning as I have no other morning, noticing its red fruit ripening among the branches that the barnyard squirrel will gorge on when it is at its peak, which marks the end of summer and autumn's incipience, how difficult it is to give up August's lushness in all of its wildness to the glorious diminishment of September with its flashy golden days, the mornings drenched with heavy dew, each one surprising as purple asters appearing amid the cool shadows of the grass. In winter, when the snow accrues, the rabbits that burrow in the, Jupiter, in the juniper hedge emerge to the bark of the dogwood since they are unable to browse and they strip a few inches from the base of the tree. But now I am drawn to the counterpoint of the catbird's cry and the, tro- and the throbbing pulse of cicadas. In making things whole, the bees of the invisible hover above deep blue stands of chicory lingering amid the flat tops of Queen Anne's lace that flourish among the leaning swaths of Timothy's newly gilt inflorescence. That's a beautiful poem. Uh, Thanks for sharing those, Wally. Um, Let me ask a little bit, everybody who always wants to know about process, Um, and you are a prolific poet. Um, You've written uh, three dozen books. Um, What's your writing process like? Do you write every day? And how do you find inspiration uh, with so much going on? Um, those are really good questions, Tim. Um, well, I, you know, I don't consider myself prolific. I consider Joyce Carol Oates prolific, but um, <laughs> I, I feel that I have a body of work. Um, so I, I just I keep on I keep on working. Um, and the last dozen years or so, the last decade has been um, after leaving the book business about twelve years ago. I um, I felt I needed to um, reinvent myself, but I, I felt that I also always wanted to um, to um, edit and write, which is what I've been doing for a living over the last few years. Uh, but to answer, uh, answer your question regarding process, I've been, um, for the last 10 or 15 years, I've been listening to guidance. That's what I, that's how I phrase it. Um, so... Um, and that sounds rather mystical or spiritual, but I do. I um, there's a certainly um, it's 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 more than inner voice. It's um, it's really uh, more of an inner direction. And uh, I I've often been directed or guided. I say um, as I say to sit down and write um, uh, to follow different directions. Um, do I write every day? Um, I'm usually working with writing every day. So. Um, 
I think that's how I can answer that. Mm -hmm. did, did you write a lot while you were working uh, in, in, in managing a bookstore or, or did you sort of come back to writing more recently? Well, uh, I, I've always written um, over the last nearly 50 years so um, and, and published, but um, I have to say that when I was managing a bookstore, that would be a 45 or 50 or sometimes 55 hour week. So um, I would, uh, when I was working on the book that was published by Southern Illinois University Press, Fun Poem, The Dimensions of Love, which Yusuf Kumanyaka selected for the Crab Orchard Series Open Poetry Competition, I worked on that book for seven years. Mm -hmm. And I, I'd come back from work from managing the store, uh, whatever store I was managing, either at Trinity College or at UMass um, in Amherst, and uh, I take off my jacket and hang it on the back of the chair and um, uh, revise and work on those poems, and I did that for seven years. Mm -hmm. So um, writing has always been, uh, as you say, I think it, it has a spiritual character and quality about it, and it certainly can be a itself a, a spiritual path. Um, so I think that that's how I can answer that. Um, I've, I've considered writing a discipline and, um, one that whose discipline I've followed the rigors of, although even when you do, that doesn't, um, that doesn't guarantee success. So one has to be, one has to persevere. But, um, I think, I think the main thing is, um, is the work, whatever the work is. I think that's the most significant aspect of writing. I'm not sure it's either publication, um, but it's the work itself. Mm -hmm. Yeah, yeah. Um, and so, so you're working uh, as a bookseller. You're working in uh, universities. Is that what what you said? Well, I, I've done. I've, I've worked kind of all aspects of the book business. Um, um, I, I was an antiquarian in used books. Mm -hmm. uh, I was. I also. I. I also loved new books. And for many years, I. Um, I represented small independent presses. Um, and was really quite um, devoted to that. Mm -hmm. um, I, I put many books um, into people's hands. Uh, Tess Gallagher, Raymond Carter, um, gee, um, writers too many to even list. Um, so it, it, it's, um, it was, I, I felt, um, I might, especially when I was much younger, I felt that I, uh, regarding the book business, I might not ever, become a successful writer but i loved i love literature mm -hmm. and um i had reading series and i hosted authors and um i um i in some stores i was able to represent both well all three used antiquarian and new but uh, my last uh, iterations um I, I i worked with new books mm -hmm. and and what do you think about you know, what do you think the future of books is? That's the thing, you know, for somebody who's been in the business for a long time, do you think, you know, I heard um, somebody describe it as um, in the future, uh, a book will be like an opera that we hold in our hands. Um, I like that phrase, but I wonder, do you think books in the digital age have um, longevity? Do you think that people are going to always read books or do you think that um, the voice will take over? Um, you know, cause this, just this platform we're on now is sort of like the Gutenberg um you know, the, the movable type printing press, uh, for the voice and for the, you know, for, um, video. And, uh, it, it makes it accessible to everybody in the same way for really cheap and really easy to distribute. 
Do you think that will replace books, or does do books have something that um, that new digital media can't um, can't replicate? I, I think I think that's a that's a very good question, especially the way that you that you fleshed it out. Um, I'd have to say that I think that um, with the kind of balanced intelligence, um, this kind of um, um, in a sense, futuristic Gutenberg that we're mm -hmm. that we're doing um, is certainly um, exciting, and it's uh, it's available. It can be made available to many people. Um, this can be a kind of book. Sure, I certainly uh, espouse this. This is this is wonderful, uh, and not just because you and I are doing it, or I I'm doing it with you, but of the many authors that you that you that you feature and host. Um, However, I, um, I think how I can explain it is that um, at one point a few years ago, I, um, I had, um, let's see, I had uh, an e-book coming out. Um, it could have been this, the, the Southern Illinois University Press book. Um, uh, there was a letterpress broadside that was published um, of mine and had a uh, volume coming out. So um, I think what I'm trying to say is I think we can make you as writers and readers of um, of in, in intelligent and balanced mm -hmm. ways uh, all of the resources that we have at hand and we, I don't think we can forget letterpress I don't think we can forget books and I I can't forget books because I love I love I love the tactile um, quality um, I, uh, years ago Tim I worked in an old poetry bookshop in New Haven and um, I was a cataloger there in the late '70s, and we uh, we ordered we had a standing order with um, Gehenna Press that um, um, published a lot of Leonard Baskin, and um, some of the books were were bound in sheepskin, so they were very sensual to sensual to to hold. They were books by Ted Hughes, and um, it was a, a wonderful thing to just experience holding books like that, the fine press books. So I think that. And that should be something that we should all be able to experience. However, this is something that would reach uh, more of a mass audience and letterpress mm -hmm. would not. Yeah, I think to, to me that the, the magic of a book is the it's like a, vac a mental vacation from from technology. And so I think f there'll always be a place for it because of that. Like it's it's so even if you're reading a book on your phone, which is really convenient because you don't have to carry the books. You know, I used to carry like a on a plane, I'd have a bag full of books and now I just have the, you know, iPad and all the books are there. But um, but there's a way that it's immersive when it's um, on paper like that. And, and there's there's no nothing that might pop up and distract you. So your your brain's not primed for any kind of interruption. And so you can really get lost in a book in a way that you can't. And and my my hope is that um, as time goes on, um, we will you know use that as sort of a, as a vacation for our brains, um, and and books will become even more popular. That's that's kind of my hope. I don't know if it if it's a wishful thinking, but that's what I'm hoping. I think that's really well phrased. I I I, I think I uh, taking vacation from technology isn't a bad thing, even on a daily basis. Mm -hmm. And just holding a book um, and reading a book is uh, is can be really special. Yeah, and, and we're in a phrase where you know, as a, as somebody who writes a lot about nature, you can really appreciate it. I think that we're coming through a time where, um, you know, getting back into nature is something that people have a longing for too. And so I think there's sort of a rebound that's coming, maybe, um, both for for nature and for books. At least one can hope. That's so, yeah, absolutely. Yeah. Um, do you want to read a few more poems? 
I would love right. that. And I should um, say, if anybody who's watching uh, live now has any questions for Wally, just uh, let me know in the chat and I'll pass them along. But, but for now, we'll read some more poems. That sounds great. Um, I, I'm going to be reading uh, a poem called Pandan, uh, P-A-N-D-A-N. It's from a triptych of poems um, from, uh, that I wrote in the Talcott Ar Arboretum at Mount Holyoke College. Pandan, this is just, I'll be reading one of these. We sit on a green wooden bench in the Talcott Arboretum at Mount Holyoke, opposite the subtropical Pandanus, whose family is also known as Scrupine, an ancient food source, and since the mid-Cretaceous, pardon me, an ancient food source used since the mid-Cretaceous, its inflorescences are spikes, umbels, or terminally born racemes whose brightly colored subtended spades were nowhere to be seen on this winter day, the snow falling behind, beyond the greenhouse windows. We sit in bliss, holding hands, meditating together on the wild extravagance of the green sheaves, of how the pandanus utilis might be compared to the hubbub of a lavish, hot cuisine dinner party, or more apt, the fourth chakra, our heart center, pleasure supreme, consummated sensual love. The pandan is so lush that even in death it is beautiful. The tips of its serrated sword-like leaves turn from an aesthetic translucent yellow to a handsome herbal brown. The plant's infectious lushness instills a sense of joy. running us in our inner ascendancy altering us, um, alerting us, rather, that what is beyond is something more than just the noon sun haloed by snow clouds. I'd like to read um, one last poem from The Days of the Invisible, and this is entitled Ley Lines. Uh, uh, Ley Lines. We walk up Pine Hill Road in Conway this Saturday afternoon, early April buds spearing up through the muddy ground. It is nearly 20 years since we last drove up the steep hill that summer. We parked the car beside the stone wall of the meadow, just past the Archibald McLeish homestead, and picnicked in the Hayde Meadow. Where we now stand, Mount Manadnock can be seen clearly in the distance in southern New Hampshire, tall stands of pines rock in the brisk wind. We survey the meadow after 20, 20 winters and 20 springs, the alder grove that has sprung up, the hummocks and tussocks that provide character to its bumpy ground. The tangled tall grass is tawny before the sunlight can green it into sheaves, then brown it again, wind-whipped and leaning, beaten down in places where deer may have lain to weather the frigid winter cold. This is where we found the grace in laying down a memory with a straw picnic basket containing sandwiches, wine, and fruit, where we now revisit and experience how that time still exists, will always be a part of us and our own mythology, the winds buffeting us. We embrace, find ourselves in the timelessness of our lives together, reaching out for each other's aging hands, touching what it is that reconnects us to the ley lines of our existence. 
Hey, thanks so much, Wally. It's definitely better now. I don't know what, what the issue was there, but um, I'm glad. I should have hung up and, and called you back earlier. Uh, oh, no, that's fine. Um, let me ask you another question. You know, you were um, book reviews editor for Modern Haiku for, for over a decade, I think it said. Um, what did you yes. learn um, um, about writing poetry by reviewing haiku for so long? Well, I've, I, I've always... Um, for decades now, I've actually straddled the two worlds between the well, the the the, the larger pond of um, verse of uh, not just verse of, of poetry and and the smaller pond of haiku. Um, in as a as a book reviewer, I and also as a bookseller, I what I try to do in my reviewing for that decade was to try to introduce into and incul inculcate into the haiku community, um, how um, certain books were might be well made, um, and also to try to um, learn and be aware of the larger resonances in the other worlds of poetry. I think that's how I can explain that. Um, I still write. I actually stopped writing haiku for about a decade in the early 2000s and was actually... Um, Summoned back by um, um, a, a couple of people, one man named John Barlow, who edits Snapshot Press in the UK, um, which is probably the finest uh, independent press publishing the very best haiku in the world um, globally. Um, and I do have I do have a practice. One of my practices actually is also writing haiku, and um, it's really a, a poem or a poetry of mindfulness. So um, you're, you can have a mindfulness practice, which is both aesthetic and also spiritual. Um, so I, I think that's some of my thinking about haiku. Um, um, did I answer your question, Tim? I'm not sure if I yeah, did. Yeah, I think you did. And, um, but you brought up another question that I'm kind of always curious about. Why do you think that uh, you mentioned that it's two worlds, haiku and sort of the broader world of verse? Why do you think they're, they're firewalled like that? That's always kind of been baffling to me. Um, I think that's well. That's a that's a very wonder. That's a wonderful question, but it's a very insightful one. Um, I, I think that um, well, I think it's how haiku is taught. Um, gee, how can I? How can it be brief? Um, I myself began writing seven uh, five seven five um, forty five more or plus years ago uh, when I was twenty, and. Um, uh, five syllable, seven syllable, five syllable lines, um, and I, of course, uh, um, the Haiku Society of America pretty much has established that um, maybe fourteen syllables might be the best. Um, so I think that what I ended up doing was to um, the the real basis behind haiku is that there are two or more images that are juxtaposed within the haiku that um, um, lead to uh, what I call the, um, the discovery of the, of the numinous in, in, the, in, the, in the commonplace. So it's kind of a mouthful, but um, it's, it's really a poem. It's, it's an aha moment. It's, it's really, there's a coalescence of, of, the, of the world coming together, of the universe coming together, and um, in that coalescence, that haiku moment um, that has what has great resonance. Um, 
regarding uh, regarding um, that firewall that you're speaking about, I think that in in larger pro poetry circles and the larger poetry world, I think haiku is not really seen as at least in North America or in America not really seen as a viable poetic practice or um, that it's somewhat light, uh, which it's not. It's actually, um, there, there, there are many, there are several people, I don't know about many, but um, some of the pioneers, some of the practitioners, such as Robert Space, who edited Modern Haiku, John Wills, um, one of my favorite haiku poets, um, who um, wrote some amazingly fine and resonant um, haiku. Um, people like that, um, uh, have really contributed greatly to the to the genre, um, and I I I think that firewall that you're speaking about. I think that oftentimes I've found that people who are only writing haiku do not read um, other kinds of poetry, and I think oftentimes people who write long poems or um, who work in um, other genres um, don't. Um, may not really read haiku, and when they do, I think that they might even misread it or not give it a lot of mm -hmm. credence. I'm not sure if I completely. I think I would need more time, but I try to exp I try to answer mm -hmm. your question. Well, well, thank you. Yeah, yeah. It's just it's just kind of strange to me, um, and and like you said, that that people who you know write different forms, you know, don't um, read haiku and vice versa, though too, where. Um, you know, the, the haiku issue that we published, well, it's Japanese Forms, issue number 47, um, sold out right. really, really quickly. Uh, it was, yeah, yeah, we have, well, I'm not, we might have a few issues left, but it's almost sold out of extra copies, which no other more recent issues are. And, um, but then it seems like people who are haiku fans, you know, they bought that issue, but they didn't buy other issues of, um, of uh, Rattle or, or subscribe generally. And, um, so, so it kind of, I wonder if, 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 um, you know, regular free verse, you know, poetry or narrative poetry doesn't do, it doesn't work on the same level. So maybe the people who find that aha moment inspiring don't get the same connection with a more narrative poem. Do you, do you think that's the case? Um, I, I think, I think that might be the case or that might be, um, might be viable. Certainly. Um, I, I hosted Billy Collins at Trinity College in 1999, and we, um, over the years, the last 20 years, we, um, although I've not been in contact with him recently, but uh, Billy writes haiku, and um, we, uh, we we have kept in touch, and um, he and I had, uh, we had spoken, of, he has a wonderful poem, this is my point, we, he has a wonderful poem entitled Japan, which is a long narrative poem, and um, he speaks about haiku throughout the poem and um, there's a there's a certain haiku moment in the long poem and I think that's um, mm. that's an example I think of, of a kind of crossover um, I think Billy does mm. that rather well um, uh, but um, um, I, I'm not sure if I um, I can I can uh, speak any more to yeah, it. Well, than thank I have. you, Wally. Um, you have three more poems you wanted to read. Do you want to? Do you want to? And from the other two books, you want to run through those to close us out? I, I really like to do that. Um, uh, this poem um, is entitled. This is from um, the Map of Eternity, which was published in the autumn of um, 
2018. And this is Rilke as Chateau de Moiselle. How you must have moved with such abundant grace between the two writing desks Manning Wonderly sent to you at the Chateau de Moiselle in Veras, the one on which you finished the Divino Elegies, the first desk delivered, and the second sent by your patron because she was unsure the first ever arrived upon which you wrote the Orpheus sonnets, how you must have moved in that February light between one desk and another beneath the postcard of Orpheus tacked up by your current lover, Valadine Klasaska, your inspiration, leaving you alone to compose in such enviable solitude. As you wrote the mother of the dead young dancer whom you dedicated the sonnets to, there Ugama Noop's ghost was commanding and impelling you how chilling, how vital that must have been to hear Vera's voice calling out to you, whispering as if she were Eurydice and you were her Orpheus. How you must have danced from one desk to another as a hurricane of the spirit blew through your inner thread and webbing. How you must have held Eurydice in your arms, then heard Vera calling as you awakened each morning, as an angel might, as we now listen and are held by you. And this tin is a poem entitled Hydrangea. This would be the penultimate poem I'd be reading tonight. These deciduous plants adorn the lawns on which they lavish panicles, large white flower heads growing among spear-shaped evergreen leaves. The bushes are as showy as their flowers, that are often thought to resemble pom-poms. Every spring and summer, I observe, their enormous blossoms bob among their greenery as if noticing someone one hasn't seen for however long and whose name is momentarily gone as I forget their names every season. The flowers bloom steadily through midsummer into August lushness, then begin their pink blush in the late summer coolness among the first harbingers of the frosts of autumn. Each year the flowers are dried and sold on roadside stands to celebrate the turning of the great wheel of summer. And each year I finally remember, then forget until next season, when the hydrangea blooms so whitely, though my memory slips away ever so much from year to year until it maybe lapses entirely. Hydrangea, May I remember your name as I might inhale your spicy fragrance. May I recall in winter the murmur of your petals whispering on the summer wind. And the last poem I'll be reading tonight is entitled Distance. And um, this is a childhood memory. What I remember most about the drive north to Connecticut from Miami is the blueness of the rainy evenings, the stopping at diners for our meals, fragrant with coffee, burgers, and fries, flipping through the selections on the jukebox, the rhythms of the doo-wop beating in time with the raindrops, striking the windows of our booth, Sinatra's voice soothing the poignance of the storm. 
Then there was the smell of mothballs and Bibles filling the emptiness of motel room drawers, my father visibly aching from the long drive, my mother's interminable patience that everything would all work out when we arrived in Milford to reconnect with friends, to visit with her cousins in Ansonia, worrying that she needed to enroll me in parochial school before the school year began, intuiting the need to finish things before her unexpected collapse from her cerebral hemorrhage, to die six days later on the operating table, leaving behind a son immersed in the amber of catatonia, a husband who would wear his bereavement as he would bear a wound. However, it was in our driving beneath the hanging Spanish moss in Georgia, when we passed the chain gang in their red and white stripes, that I met the gaze of an African-American man with an animated face, quizzically meeting my eyes, looking out the backseat window, his expression intimating to me how much he wanted to be unchained again, to be able to put down his pickaxe and to get out of the heat, to quit the punishing road work of breaking stones, to throw off the gravity of the iron weighing down his limbs, and as our car continued up the road, to climb in with us, to release himself from his captivity, to revel in seeing the distance accrue into the magnitude of the passing landscape, the stark glassiness of his eyes staying with me all of these years, the pleading in them, his dire face expressing the dread I would come so well to know myself that openly relayed, please, don't leave me behind. Thanks so much, Wally. A beautiful, beautiful poem. Um, I, you know, I didn't get a chance to read that book. What does Candling the Eggs mean? That's such a strange title. Um, I suppose it is such a strange title. I think um, uh, after the fact, I, I, I'm, I'm, I don't regret uh, in, um, choosing that title poem. Um, Candling the Eggs... Um, um, that is a, that regards another childhood memory. Um, my father had uh, what was a at times, although he was a, a he could be a generous man. He had a, a pretty uh, violent temper, and my mother would send me as a very small child next door to um, to the Dornishes, um, and Mrs. Dornish would take me downstairs, and it was catacomb like Tim downstairs. They were. There was the walls were wet, and she would we would candle eggs, and she had cookies in her apron pocket, and um, it was uh, it was my first spiritual experience, um, and um, the book is called Candling the Eggs. Um, uh, my intent in that was um, that each poem would be uh, considered uh, could be considered an egg that we that the reader could possibly candle, bring up to the and look at. So that's, that's why I did t entitle the book that, but I think that uh, in this in this era, um, it might seem a little arcane. Well, it's, a, it's a cool title and a, and a great, uh, great set of books. Well, thanks so much for joining us. It's been a real pleasure talking to you tonight and hearing your poems. Uh, Tim, thank you so much. Yeah, yeah have a good night. Bye. You too. Bye-bye. And uh, that was uh, Wally Swist. And um, if you want to find more on Wally Swist, um, actually his website wasn't working. So, so you can just Google, uh, go to Amazon and uh, type in Wally Swist and you'll find all his books. He has uh, a bunch of them available there. And I hope you enjoyed that, this uh, 
interview and reading with Wally. Um, if you did, please click on the uh, like button or uh, share it or make sure you're subscribed however you're listening. Um, we're going to take a uh, little bit of break like we always do. And, um, and we will go to uh, the open mics. If you'd like to call in on the open mic, all you have to do is uh, send me a message on um, Skype. And um, send it to Rattle Poetry, a chat message. I will reply and let you know you're on. And um, then we will call you back when the time is right. Um, the uh, Let's see. And so that's if you're watching live. Uh, if you're watching, uh, uh, just listening through iTunes or uh, Stitcher or any of those uh, podcasting apps, that's all for now. We don't include the open mic on that part of the show. But... Um, Hope you enjoyed this, and I um, hope you have a great week. Next week, we will have... Let me put up next week's poet. We're going to have uh, Nicole Brown, to those who are our first gods. Um, it's her most recent chapbook. She's also the um, author of a book, Sister, Novel and Verse, and she has a new book forthcoming, too. It's a really great, really great poet. Um, really a pleasure to publish uh, to those who are our first gods, which was winner of the 2018 Rattle Chapbook Prize. So I hope you can join us then. For Nicole Brown, we'll see you next week. And if you're staying for the open mic, I'll see you in just a couple minutes. Good night.